Luke 1, verses 67 to 79. And John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, a couple of years back, uh, in the height of the pandemic, uh, I came across this uh, article, this op-ed in the Washington Post. Uh, I was living in D.C. at the time, so I would try and read the Post. And there was this classical music critic who wrote this article uh, titled, 2020 Broke Christmas Music. Here's what I'm listening to instead. And maybe you felt the same way in the height of the pandemic, if I can bring us back to that moment of collective agony uh, that was COVID. Uh, In the article, he writes this. He says, the holiday, it appears, are here. And with them, the annual sleigh dump of Christmas music, which this year arrives like an unsolicited fruitcake, unexpectedly heavy, disproportionately sweet, and near impossible to digest. In past years, I've been able to keep my Grinchier impulses in check. Christmas music has long been a seasonal allergen. I could power through the right level of mindful attention, i.e. tuning out, and medication, which is open to your interpretation. Uh, in 2020, however, every carol stings like a murder hornet. Remember those murder hornets? <laughs> uh, I'll be home for Christmas, yes, so I've been instructed. The most wonderful time of the year? See, we're grading on a curve. Uh, here comes Santa Claus, not without a mask, he doesn't. And don't even think about kissing my mother. <laughs> there aren't really enough chestnuts in the world to make this holiday season feel like reason to sing. Maybe you felt that way then, and maybe this year you're feeling the same way. Uh, And then he wrote what to me was the most impactful sentence of the article. He said, what if Christmas were less about presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, and more about presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E? What if Christmas were less about presence and more about presence? And I think he's right. I think he's touching on a nerve, on a deep desire that we all have of belonging, of connection, of being part of something more. He's speaking for people who are tired of the empty, commercialized versions of Christmas, and for people who long for something of substance, something of of being seen and seeing other people. And during Advent, we've been looking at the songs of Christmas in Luke's Gospel. And when God sent his Son into the world, he gave his people songs to to help us pause and reflect on the significance, on on the marvelous nature of the Christmas story of, of God becoming one of us, of the author of history writing himself into the story uh, to, to know our experiences, to, to walk a, a mile in our shoes and to bring us back in the right, right relationship with God. And, and the song that we just read was the song of Zechariah. And Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner for Jesus. He was sort of uh, the hype man for Jesus's ministry. He went first to tell people about 
about the one who is coming behind him. And the Christmas songs in Luke's gospel, Mary's song last week, Zechariah's song this week, they're not sentimental songs. These aren't chestnuts roasting on an open fire. These are songs of substance. They're songs of hope that are, help, that are meant to help us lift our head in a time when we might just want to wallow in the darkness of the world. And Zechariah's song is revolutionary because it's a song about presence, about P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, about God coming to visit his people. The song of Zechariah begins and ends with an announcement of God's visitation, of God's presence with his people. You see it in verse 68 where it says, God has visited his people. And then you see it in verse 78 where it says that the daylight from on high will come and visit us. And so Zechariah sings a song about God's presence, about God's visitation. And my thesis statement this morning is that when God visits his people, his presence brings salvation and light. When God visits his people, his presence brings salvation and light. And so those are going to be our two themes this morning. So uh, let's consider first uh, how God's presence brings salvation. So look with me again at verse 68, where Zechariah's song begins. It begins with a declaration that God has visited his people and his visit has brought salvation, redemption, rescue for the people of God. And in, in verses 68 to 75, this salvation story, this rescue story that Zechariah sings about has three parts to it. It involves a salvation from something, a salvation by someone, and a salvation for a purpose. So Zechariah first talks about a salvation from something. He, sa- he says that the salvation means that we're, that we're saved from our enemies. And that's what he sings about in verse 71. He says, when God visits his people, he saves them from their enemies and from the hand of all who hate them. And, and so who are the enemies that Zechariah is singing about? Well, it, many would, it is probable to say that Zechariah is singing about uh, salvation from the enemies, which are the Romans, the occupying power, uh, the oppression, the oppressive force on the Jewish people uh, of Zechariah's day. And, and there is a, a, a lot of truth to that. And we'll touch on that material, earthly uh, the components of the song in just a bit. But not only does Zechariah talk about enemies without the, the Romans, the occupiers, uh, if you jump down to verse 77, you'll notice that Zechariah is also talking not just about an enemy without, he's also talking about an enemy within. When he talks about the nature of John's ministry, what, what John is going to do in, in his work in the run-up to, to the arrival of Jesus, Zechariah says that John is going to go to his countrymen, the people of Israel, and say that God's mercy has come upon you because God is looking at your sins and he's bringing forgiveness for your sins. He's bringing judgment on the nations, but he's showing mercy and forgiveness to you. And so Zechariah is saying that, that we need freedom, we need salvation, not just from the enemies without, the forces of oppression and injustice out there in the world, but we also need salvation from the enemies within the ways that we contribute to the brokenness and, and the injustice in the world, that we need salvation from the enemies on the inside as well. And, and verse 78 says that God shows his mercy to people by forgiving their sins. And the people of God aren't saved because they're better people. They're, they're a more spectacular, more morally put together nation than the other people around them. No, God's salvation comes to the people of Israel, not because they're lovely or lovable, but because God loved them. They, they, God set his love on them first, and because of his love, he goes to them to make them lovely. It's not that they were lovely, but that God loved them, and in his grace, he makes them 
lovely. And when the Bible talks about salvation, this has always been the case, just like we saw in Mary's song last week. It's not that God brings together the good people and he scatters the bad people, that God looks on people who have it all together and says, you're on my team. No, the story of the gospel is that God looks at the people who know they're bad, who, who know they're scattered, and, and those who know they need help, they need salvation, that, that, that they're in a mess, that we're in a mess, that we can't clean up on our own or save ourselves from that, that when God looks and brings salvation to his people, it's always the people who know their need, who know how far they've missed the mark, who know how much they need a savior. And so salvation begins with this admission that, that we're in a mess, that we need salvation, not just from the enemies without, but we need salvation from the enemies within. We need somebody to come from the outside to bring us out to save us. And so along with salvation from our enemies, Zechariah says that, that, we, that we get this salvation by a rescuer who redeems. We're, we're saved from our enemies by a rescuer who redeems. In verse 68, uh, Zechariah says that God saves his people by redeeming them through a horn, which is just another first century uh, turn of phrase to say a ruler, a king, that, that, God saves his, that God redeems his people through a ruler raised up in the house of David. And in this song, Zechariah is combing through the promises of the Old Testament. Again, just like Mary's song, Zechariah is not freestyling this song. He, he is filled with Old Testament images, and he's bringing them all together in this song. And specifically, he's looking at the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, that, that through Abraham there would be one who would bless the world. And then he's also looking at the promise that God made to David, uh, the greatest king in Israel in 2 Samuel 7, where God told David there was going to come a ruler from the line of David who would rule over his people forever. So Zechariah takes these two promises to Abraham and to David, and he ties them together in his song and says that, that both of these promises are being fulfilled. And, and, and in Zechariah's day, in the first century, there was this strong belief that this, that this promised deliverer from God, which was known as the Christ or the Messiah in those days, that, that the Messiah would be also not just a, a spiritual savior of God's people, but he would be a political savior. That, that he would come and overthrow the oppressive empires of the day and establish the, the, the Jewish people, uh, establish the kingdom of God on earth forever. That, that these things were, were inextricably tied. And, and when Jesus comes, Jesus does view himself as the Messiah, but he has a completely different understanding of what it means to be the Messiah. In fact, if you go to the Gospel of John, there's actually a couple of instances where the people tried to make Jesus into this political type Messiah. Uh, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, there's this movement to try and make Jesus king. But Jesus resists that. And Jesus resists it not because he, he, not just, not because he, he didn't have a political agenda. Jesus did come into the world to do a lot of earthly good. But Jesus says that, that my kingdom is an otherworldly kingdom, that it has a spiritual dimension, not just a completely and only exclusively political dimension. That my, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom before, uh, it, it, before it's an earthly kingdom. And, and in calling uh, the kingdom a spiritual kingdom, Jesus isn't throwing our, our political or our, uh, or our material or our physical needs aside and saying they're unimportant. Jesus is just saying that, that, there's, that there's a greater enemy that's more pernicious and more deadly that needs to be addressed first. That's the problem of the enemies within, the, the enemies of, of sin, of guilt, of shame. And, and, and Jesus came to save us uh, from all of those enemies, the enemies without, the enemies within, uh, the enemies of our, of our own sin and pride and our, our inclinations to manipulate and exploit and use other people. And Jesus does judge this salvation through redemption. That's the language of the song is redemption. And redemption is paying the price 
of something owed. It's, it's paying the price to reclaim something that has been lost. It's, it's a payment that covers and eliminates a debt. And when the Bible talks about sin, it, it uses this language of a debt being created, uh, of a payment that, that needs to be owed. Um, that when the Bible talks about sin, it, it says that when we live for ourselves and when we go our own way instead of God's way, we create this debt against God that must be dealt with. Uh, an illustration uh, that I think is helpful like this. Kids, um, I've got like seven nieces and nephews back home and they're all obsessed with the Nintendo Switch right now. So maybe you have one. You got one? All right. So imagine I, I go over to your home or your dorm or, or whatever and you know, you, you're a very gracious host. You pour me a cup of coffee and we're sitting and talking. And as I reach for my cup of coffee, I spill it all over your Nintendo Switch and fry it and break it. What's happened? Well, a debt has been created. Somebody is out a Nintendo Switch and somebody's got to pay, right? Either, either I've got to pay the debt or you've got to pay the debt. Uh, somebody has to absorb the loss uh, of that thing and it, it needs to be addressed, right? You just can't live without your Nintendo Switch. It needs to be replaced. And in a grand cosmic sense, that it's sort of the, the dynamics of sin and its impact on the world. That when we live for ourselves, rather than living for God, we've broken the world. We've poured coffee onto the switchboard of reality, and now it doesn't work as, it, as it's meant to be. And God, because he made this world, and because he loves it dearly, he wants to repair it. He wants to make it right. But the dilemma that God is presented with is that the thing that he loves most in his creation, that the only thing in his creation that bears his image and likeness, is the very thing that broke the universe to begin with. And so the, the problem that's presented to God is how does God do away with the evil of the world, with the brokenness of the world, without doing away with the breakers of the world, with the people who caused the mess to begin with? And that's what the Christmas story is all about. That, that's what this message of Jesus becoming a man is, is all about, because, because humanity created the debt, only humanity can pay it. But because it's such a complicated problem that in order for God to do away with would do away with evil without doing away with the evildoers is that Jesus comes into the world that the eternal Son of God becomes a man and, and, and takes on human flesh to pay the debt that we uh, all deserve to pay, that he bears the punishment for breaking God's world in our place. Why? So that we can receive God's mercy, so that we can receive forgiveness for our sins and restored relationship with our Creator. That Jesus loves his world, he loves us so much that he would rather, that, that he decided to come in our place so that we could belong to God again, that we could uh, experience his mercy and grace, a salvation uh, that nothing else in this world could compare. Uh, it's kind of like that scene, the incarnation. It's kind of like that scene in, in, in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, the movie, not the book, because I try to fact check it if it was in the book, only in the movie. But it's, it's that line where Harry marches out in the Forbidden Forest to go meet Voldemort. And Voldemort you know, says, the boy who lived come to die. And that's the Christmas story. The boy who lived, the son who lived from all eternity come to confront the evil and brokenness and death in our world so that in exchange we can receive the mercy of God. That he took the death so that we could go free. And this salvation from our enemies by a ruler who redeems is not the end of the story because not only are we saved from and saved by, Zechariah's song says that we're also saved for. We're saved for a purpose. In verses 74 to 75, uh, Zechariah says that having been delivered from our enemies, we're now free to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. 
In, in our day, the freedom narrative is, is one of the dominant stories that governs our lives. It's like the air we breathe. The, the freedom narrative is that uh, you, you need to be whoever you want to be. And if there's a conflict that arises between your inner desires and who you want to be uh, and the rules, whether those rules are the, the rules of a religious system or an institution or society or stereotype, that if there's a conflict between who you want to be and the rules that are, that are out there, then you break the rules. And what it, what the gap in the freedom narrative is, it's not that it's a bad story, but it's, it's an incomplete story because it lacks this, this freedom for component. That, that the freedom narrative gets it right that, that we are uh, constrained, that you know, Rousseau had it right, that you know, man is born free and everywhere is in chains, that, that in some ways that we are enchained, we're enslaved, not just to external forces uh, as, as society would tell us, but we're also enslaved to the internal forces, our own lust and greed and anger and pride that we need liberated from as well. Uh, the cultural freedom narrative kind of downplays the internal change and highlights the external change. And then it says, once you, once you do break free of all those constraints, that you're not free, but free to be who? Free, free, free to do what? Free, free to be me, but which version of me? Because I have desires that aren't in harmony with one another. I have desires that pull me in two different ways. And so which self do I be true to? Which, which self should I, should I be free to be? And the, the, the narrative of freedom in our culture breaks down at that point because it doesn't give you a freedom for. It doesn't give you a purpose or a meaning to live for that, that helps bring order uh, to the different desires and affections that we have. And so uh, the, the story of the, of the Bible, the story of the Song of Zechariah says that there is a freedom for, that there is a meaning and a purpose that can actually give your life freedom in, in the fullest sense of the world, that, that we're made to live for God. Uh, to, to live in holiness and righteousness, to live a life without fear in his presence. And isn't that the kind of life that you want to live this morning, a life without fear? Zechariah says it can only come not when you listen to your own heart, but when you listen to God, when you, when you listen to his word and what he has to say about how the world works, about how the world uh, that he made operates and living your life in accordance with that, that the life lived without fear is the life lived for God. And unless you have that kind of meaning and purpose in your life, what I would argue, uh, a meaning and purpose that comes from the outside, uh, you're not going to live the fullest life that you were made to live, that we were made to know God and to live for him. And that in living for him, we find that life is full of meaning and purpose and transformation. And, and while I've been highlighting the spiritual nature of this song, it's, uh, it is about being safe from our sin, but I don't want to leave it at just that because Mary's song last week and Zechariah's song this week they do talk about our earthly situation in the here and now. There are, uh, there are gross injustices in the world today. There is exploitation on a mass scale. There's, there's little ways that our lives are, are broken uh, by, the, by, the, by the physical, by the tangible things of the world. And so the gospel message is, is a message that speaks to those things as well. The gospel is a message that should uh, have heavenly truth that does a lot of earthly good. And on that point, I want to say two things. The first is that when we look at the, these, these songs of justice, these songs of revolution, and from Mary and Zechariah, one important thing to keep in mind is that the primary actor in these songs is God. So when you read about Mary, uh, and when you read about Zechariah bringing about um, revolution and, and justice and, and filling the hungry with good things and casting down those who are, uh, who are proud or who are rich, it, the primary actor is, is God. The sword belongs in his hand and not ours, and so that should free us from, from trying to belong to any kind of political program that seeks to assert our own uh, sense of justice, our own sense of values, and trust that God knows what he's doing. He's the primary actor. But then secondly, uh, I want to draw your attention to the second book that Luke wrote. So Luke wrote this gospel, and he wrote a, a sequel to this book called the Book of Acts. 
And in the book of Acts, it tells the story of the early church. And it's in the early church that we see these things that Mary and Zechariah are singing about coming to fruition, becoming realities in, uh, in the community of Christians, in the community of the church, where we see those who have needs, we, we see their needs being met in the church. We see those who have power, who abuse their authority, be exposed and be brought low. That, that the things that these songs are, are calling for in terms of filling the needy with good things, of, of bringing down the lowly, these things start in the church, and as the world embraces the message of Jesus, these things work outward from there. And so before we point fingers at the world and call for change and, and justice out there, we, we need to be a community that has the honesty to look within first, to, to find those things in our community that are out of step with the message and teachings of Jesus, and seek to reform our own house. Otherwise, we're, we're standing on a... On a on, on grounds of hypocrisy, on grounds of insincerity, that, that we need to we need to work in our own in our own house before we deal with the problems of the world. And I hope that Res Prez is a church that is honest about ourselves, about our own shortcomings, that we seek to do business with our hearts, even as we move out into the world to be the salt and light that Jesus calls us to be. So that's the first thing that God's presence shows us. When God visits His people, He brings salvation with Him. But secondly, though, when God visits His people. His presence brings light. His presence brings light. In verses 78 to 79 in our passage, Zechariah says this. He says, The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So what does this mean? Well, much like the concept of salvation, uh, in talking about light, Zechariah is giving us uh, another image, another handle to describe what Jesus came to do and why his birth and why the Christmas message matters so deeply. Christmas contains many spiritual truths, but one of the most central is that the world is a dark place and we'll never find our way out or see reality unless we see Jesus is our light. Unless we see Jesus as our light. Zechariah says that the world is a dark place. It's dark because of the untold evil and, and injustice and violence in the world. And it's also dark because of our own ignorance. That despite no matter how much we learn, no matter how much knowledge we acquire, we're still no closer to solving some of the, some of the intractable problems of evil and suffering in our world. And that can be kind of a hard message for us to hear. Uh, uh, us being a church in a university town with so many graduate students. That no matter how much advancement we make in the realms of uh, medicine and agriculture and technology and all these different fields, uh, we're not moving any closer to peace and prosperity for all. In fact, some of our advancements are actually making the world a little bit darker. Wouldn't you agree? And when we come to the Bible, uh, the message that the Bible presents us over and over again is, is, is a message that we should never become numb to the forces of darkness, but do all in our power that we can to resist them, but also that we should dispel ourselves of any illusions that we can overcome the darkness on our own. The message of the Bible is things really are this bad. Things really are this dark. But nevertheless, light is coming. Light is dawning. Nevertheless, there is hope. Why? Because Jesus uh, is, has come into the world. A light from the outside has dawned on our situation and is bringing us light. And in Jesus, we ultimately see that God saves his people not by pulling us out of darkness, but by entering into the darkness, by entering into our condition. That Jesus comes to us as a human being enmeshed in all the pain and suffering of the world in order to know our darkness. And he, and he knows our darkness by going to the cross in our place and doing it freely out of sheer love for you. And in describing what Jesus did in the incarnation uh, and becoming a man, the, the author C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, in the Christian story, God comes down 
down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, and down further still if embryologists are right to recapitulate in the womb and ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seedbed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. Jesus goes down but to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. In his earthly ministry, Jesus described his ministry as being light to the world. And it's in that light that we see light. And it's, it's in that light, as Tolkien says, that becomes a light for us when all other lights go out. That in spite of all the darkness in the world, Jesus is a light for us when all other lights go out. And I love how Zechariah's song draws attention to this light that's dying on us, that it, that it, comes, to go, that it comes to those in the darkest places, to those who, have, who, are, who are sitting in darkness, to those who are sitting in the shadow of death, to those who feel like that they have no reason to hope, no reason to believe, those who have just, who have just resigned themselves to sitting in the darkness, saying things will never get better. Zechariah says that light has dawned on those sitting in darkness. Light has come to those miring and wallowing in the shadow of death, and he's come to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is an allusion back to the 23rd Psalm where it talks about the Lord being our shepherd who leads us not only in paths of righteousness, but who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus is able to walk this valley with us, not as some impotent counselor or comforter saying things are going to be okay when they're not, but he walks this valley as the one who has walked through it and now walks with us alongside us as the one who knows the way out, as the one who knows the way home, as the one who is able to guide our feet through the darkest valleys on the way of peace. Not, not removing us from our trials necessarily, but walking with us and giving us, giving us a kind of peace to navigate those things in a way that we couldn't do otherwise. That Jesus is on the road with us, taking us home. And these are the kinds of Christmas songs our souls need. Uh, the, the music critic had it right. He says there are not enough chestnuts in the world to make this holiday season feel like reason to sing. And I agree with him. There aren't enough chestnuts in the world. Not even had a chestnut, I don't think. But the author of, of this Christmas song, Zechariah, has it right too. There is enough grace in God to make this holiday season reason enough to sing. Because God has visited his people. And his visitation to us has brought salvation and light. The kind of light that the gospel writer John says has shone into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God whose presence to us brings salvation and light. And Lord, help us to better know those two truths this Christmas season. We thank you that you are a God who has brought us salvation from the enemies within. And as we await salvation from the enemies without, would your light guide us in that way of peace. Help us to be a people filled with hope as we look, uh, as we rejoice in your first coming, and as we await your second. We pray this in his name. Amen.